You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio and online at kpfa.org. My name is C.S. Song. What an epic, exhausting battle centered much of the time in Berkeley, California. And what a remarkable, exhilarating victory as tens of thousands of people, most of them listeners to at least one of the five Pacifica radio stations, outmaneuvered and outlasted Mary Frances Berry, chair of the Pacifica Foundation's National Board and her allies on that governing body. The battle, the years-long struggle, witnessed the shutdown of KPFA in mid-1999, huge mobilizations in the streets and on the Internet, the arrests of a number of Pacifica workers and listeners, and dramatic confrontations around the Pacifica Radio Network, which in addition to KPFA includes KPFK in Los Angeles, KPFT in Houston, WBAI in New York City, and WPFW in Washington, D.C. So what was the real motive behind the actions of Pacifica's leadership? Was it an attempted takeover by corporate hijackers or part of an agenda to NPRI's Pacifica? Or was it part of a broader strategy to give Pacifica a coherent national presence, a strategy that was bound to fail? Pacifica historian Matthew Lazar has spent the last several years trying to answer these questions. The result is a new book entitled Uneasy Listening, Pacifica Radio's Civil War, published by Black Apollo Press. Uneasy Listening also looks at Pacifica Radio's history in the crucial decades of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, times that set the stage for the turmoil that began in 1999. Matthew teaches U.S. history at UC Santa Cruz and is also author of Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network. This Saturday marks the 57th anniversary of KPFA's founding. You can, by the way, find more information about this event on kpfa.org. And to mark the occasion, we bring you, for the first time, the full-length conversation we taped with Matthew Lazar, only portions of which we were able to present during KPFA's last fund drive. When we sat down with Lazar, he began with some early history discussing what KPFA and Pacifica founder Lewis Hill wanted his new radio station to do. Let me tell you about a letter written by Lewis Hill describing what he wanted for KPFA. And he said, and I quote, One could hardly deny that the controversial part of our program will alienate all kinds of people. And then he went on in the letter to say, so what? I think the rest of the planned program will support the enterprise, and beyond that, it is high time that all kinds of people were alienated by things said over the radio. Even here, though, I am not sure at all about the total effect of our educational programming. We won't have many, if any, one-man commentaries, lectures on how to think. My own experience has long ago convinced me that the most effective propaganda can be achieved not by exclusiveness, but by the opposite. An argument is a thousand times more convincing if it succeeds in the context of its opposite. For this reason, most, if not all, of our ideological programming will be centered in forums and roundtables of the liveliest and most explosive sort. We'll have everybody on these forums all the time, including the American Legion, etc. What we'll depend on is our ability to get participants with the right point of view on the subject in question who can outparry the others. If we follow this program consistently, we will go places. So he obviously wanted dialogue. He wanted something new that wasn't on radio as it existed at the time. Lewis Hill was a pacifist. He was jailed as a pacifist during World War II. What message did he want to foreground in those discussions, in those debates that he wanted to have on the air at KPFA? Lewis Hill was an anarchist and he was a pacifist. 
And what he wanted was he wanted a forum for anarchism and pacifism on the radio, actually. But he wanted a forum that was broad enough so that everyone would listen. That meant sharing the radio station with everyone, from the far left to the far right, from the mainstream to the marginal, and asking them anarcho-pacifist questions. He wanted to control the questions, not so much the answers. He wanted to control the fulcrum around which the discussion took place, because he recognized that if he just put out another pacifist newsletter or something along those lines, that just the pacifist in-crowd would listen to it. He would basically just... He didn't want to define the community as just the community of himself and his friends. He he was trying to project towards a larger audience. And that was, of course, Lewis Hill's original goal. Now, part of Lewis Hill starting up this foundation, the Pacifica Foundation, in 1946, and then its first radio station... KPFA, which went on the air in 1949, part of this involved setting up a structure for governing, for overseeing what happened at Pacifica and the KPFA. What did Lewis Hill do with the governance structure? How did he set it up? The original government structure was essentially an anarcho-syndicalist cooperative. As he said, the people who did the work made the decisions. It was basically something called a um, executive membership, which was everybody who did any work for the Pacifica Foundation or for KPFA. And they elected a committee of directors, and the committee of directors elected managers, and the manager was inevitably Lewis Hill. In 1953, 1954, Lewis Hill lost control of the organization. And when he came back, he came back less um, enamored of the anarcho-syndicalist model. And he created a model in which there would be community representatives invariably picked by him, and there would be some staff, and it was a more, to his mind, more manageable um, mm. um, uh, radio station um, in terms of governance. The one thing that he left out of his system was any role for governance of the listeners. And I think if you think about where Lewis Hill came from in the during the Second World War, you can understand why he was um, suspicious of doing that. Lewis Hill was very suspicious of popular democracy. All of his friends were very suspicious of popular democracy. They had opposed the most popular war in U.S. history, and they'd been utterly marginalized as a result. Uh, They knew that they were going to oppose further popular wars as they came up. Lewis Hill very dramatically opposed U.S. entry into the Korean War. Uh, He publicly said that he would not cooperate in any way with the Korean War. Lewis Hill understood that um, everyone loves a pacifist until there's a war. And then suddenly everybody, the pacifist comes out on the war and then everybody says, what are you coming out of the war for? Coming out against the war for? And the pacifist says, well, we're pacifists, remember? But in the height of a war, it's difficult for um, people to tolerate pacifists as easily as they do when there's not a war. So Lewis Hill, fearing popular democracy, excluded the listeners from governance. And you write that this system of governance set up a contradiction that exploded into the open a number of time over the years, but certainly 50 years later with the Civil War at KPFA and Pacifica. Talk about that. Well, what he, what I say is, is that Lewis Hill created a foundation without any money. I mean, the foundation didn't have any money. KPFA basically raised the money from the listeners. The actual philanthropists of the organization, the listener subscribers, were not included in governance. So you basically had a governance structure without any money and a and a, and a money structure without any political power. Invariably, over the years, and I 
talk about this a lot in this book um, from the from the very get go through the 1990s. Uh, whenever programming can't change or anything changed at Pacifica Radio, groups of listeners, subscribers got together and said, "How come we weren't? If we're so indispensable." to this organization. How come we weren't consulted about this? It happened in the 1970s. It happened in the 1960s. It even happened in the 1950s. Um, it even happened with Lewis Hill. Lewis Hill was confronted with this over and over again. What Pacifica invented, and I use a phrase which I repeat over and over in this book, is the rhetoric of moral ownership. Pacifica, on the air, you constantly heard people saying, give to KPFA, give to WBAI in New York City, give to KPFK. It's your radio station. So much so that by the late 1960s, the historian and radical writer Theodore Rozak wrote an article about KPFA in which he said, whatever the legal structure is of KPFA, KPFA is really our radio station. This is not some idea that he just got through osmosis. This is what you got from KPFA propaganda, from Pacifica propaganda. Give to KPFA. It's your radio station. And there's the phrase community radio station. Right, and community radio station, which is a later invention. Actually, Lewis Hill never used the phrase community radio station. And actually, I don't think that it's an accurate description of what KPFA is. I don't think that KPFA is really a community radio station. What I think is is it's a regional listener-supported radio station. I don't think that you can describe what the, 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 the range that KPFA has, you know, all the way down from the ultimate Altamont Pass up to parts of Sacramento, unfortunately, not all of Sacramento. I don't think you can describe it as a community. Even more so, KPFK in Los Angeles, which broadcasts to an area bigger than many nation states. So you were saying that there was a sense of moral ownership that a lot of listeners had had, and there were some natural consequences but unfortunately, But unfortunately, it wasn't true. I mean, I don't know how to say this diplomatically, but the on a legal level, when Pacifica staff said for years and years and years to the listeners, WBI, KPFA, KPFK, it's your radio station. Or maybe on you know on, on some mushy sense it's true, but on, on a legal level it wasn't true. There was, was the license is owned by the Pacifica National Board, um, so it wasn't really. But this rhetoric of moral ownership was designed to smooth over that rather blatant contradiction. What Lynn Chadwick and Mary Frances Berry did that was so extremely damaging to their cause, if you want to call it a cause, was was that they were suddenly very honest to everyone. People criticized them for being liars, saying that they lied about all kinds of things. But I argue that the thing that they did that radicalized Pacifica Radio the most was that they, they were very honest about this. When they were confronted with, isn't this the community's radio station? Isn't this our radio station? You know, Mary Frances Berry, the lawyer, and Lynn Chadwick, the um, the bureaucratic expert, said, no, it isn't. Nope, it's not. Take a look here. Article here, Communications Act, belongs to, doesn't belong to you. Belongs to the Pacifican board. That, above all else, radicalized the Pacifica organization and created the um, impetus to overthrow the old board um, and um, create the new democratic structure that we have now. And we'll talk a lot more about what has happened since the mid-1990s. Lynn Chadwick, of course, was the executive director of the Pacifica Foundation, which owns the license to KPFA 
And Mary Frances Berry was, if you didn't know already, the chairwoman of the Pacifica National Board during those tumultuous years beginning in, uh, well, 1999 and earlier. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio and online at kpfa.org. Co-producer Sasha Lilly is at the controls. My name is C.S. Song. We are speaking with Matthew Lazar. He teaches U.S. history and telecommunications politics at UC Santa Cruz, and we're talking about his latest book about Pacifica Radio entitled Uneasy Listening, Pacifica Radio's Civil War. You mention in the book that it was pointed out to you by the program director of WBAI that your last book entitled Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network, did not deal with or did not deal extensively with the issue of race and racial politics in Pacifica and that you meant to rectify that in this current book. Talk about how the issue of race exploded onto the uh, Pacifica scene. Let's take the 1970s and what its ramifications were. Well, I hope uh, you won't mind my sharing the moment at which um, some more remarksmen at WBAI um, said that to me. Sure. It was um, February 28th, 1999. It was a, uh, a contentious day in Pacifica history because the National Board was meeting in Berkeley and was about to turn itself into a self-appointing board. And I was being interviewed by um, some Maury marksmen and Al Lewis. Uh, Al Lewis, a programmer at WBAI who died recently, um, a beloved um, programmer at WBAI and most famously known as Herman Munster, um, was also in Car 52, Where Are You?, and just before the interview began, Samori Marshman kind of confronted me with, he said the book was very good, but it doesn't deal with race at all. It doesn't deal with ethnic conflict at the Pacifica stations. And I, my response was, this is off the air, was is that this was pretty much about the earliest years when the organization was predominantly a white organization. But I made a mental note to call Samori Marksman and to um, talk about it with him some more. And two weeks later, he died. So I thanked him in the acknowledgments for prompting me to um, deal with this issue. Uh, if I may boast about this book for a minute, of course. Um, this is one of the few monographs about public broadcasting that really deals with race and ethnicity. Mm. People will not agree, I'm sure, with what they read in this book, but it takes the issue on head on. Um, most books about public broadcasting head for the hills when it comes to this issue. This book does not. And I'm sure that people will disagree with it. I'm sure that people will agree with parts, perhaps. But it, but I certainly don't shy away from the from the issue. The central fact about Pacifica Radio, the central problem that Pacifica Radio faces, is that it is five big signal, uh, listener supported, non commercial, wide ranging, um, resource filled radio stations full of people with no place better to go. The way that broadcasting is constructed in the United States, especially today, worse than ever, is that there is hardly any place for ordinary people to get access to terrestrial broadcasting. And as it's turning out, even satellite broadcasting isn't, isn't, isn't um, providing very much local access. I mean, look at Sirius, which just, you know, paid Howard Stern, you know, half a billion dollars to bring him and his audience of 12-year-old boys um, to, to satellite radio, how much local access do you think you're going to get on when they made that kind of an investment? Mm -hmm. The result is, is that as Pacifica Radio grew in the 1960s, it always grew with the message, we are here for everybody, we are here for the masses, we are here for the people, we are 
the radio station, as Lewis Hill said, just one floor off the street. The rhetoric of openness and accessibility was part and parcel of Pacifica's early language. Well, if you go around saying that you're open to the people, the people will show up. I guarantee it. Mm -hmm. And the people showed up. African-American people, Latino people, Asian-American people, gay, lesbian people, all kinds of activists, all kinds of different people came and they said, where's our space? Where's our room in this? And the 1970s, late 1960s, starting the late 1960s, the 1970s, you start seeing Pacifica Radio trying very hard to accommodate this, all these new people who are coming asking for their share of the free speech Big signal, non-commercial radio pie. And it's a very difficult, um, very um, tortured story because there's a lot of fighting and a lot of struggle that goes on. And um, um, the the resolution of that, to the extent that it was resolved, was that Pacifica sort of revised its um, public persona. It began calling itself community radio. That is to say, accessible to all of these different diverse communities. And the purpose of that, actually, was not to give uh, the organization any really specific definition, but to create an ideology that would accommodate all these diverse, um, often very different people showing up in the radio station and at the five radio stations and trying to share it. And many, as you document, many of the people of color and other constituencies who came into the station, came into the various Pacifica stations, had an agenda that included some kind of racial separation that had kind of an exclusive ethnic focus to it. What was the level of acceptance by management toward that kind of programming? And what did actually some people of color, some programmers of color, later in the decade have to say about whether this kind of enclave programming made sense. Well, early on you had what I describe and what they describe as kind of third world strategies, um, separate programming enclaves within uh, Pacifica Radio. What you had was you had this clash between two groups. You had older white programmers who acknowledged that, you know, five, ten years after the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, what the Pacifica stations had become, especially KPFA, had become was unacceptable. You couldn't just have all white boards, all white staffs, or mostly white boards and mostly white staffs. You couldn't have that. You also had a lot of um, groups of people who came in with um, what I would not describe. In some instances, they had separate, explicitly separatist agendas. In some instances, they had somewhat separatist agendas. In some instances, they didn't have any separatist mm-hmm. agendas at all. Um, uh, but you had a lot of fighting and negotiating about how separate things would be. Um, and that uh, went on and was uh, was a particularly difficult moment in the mid-1970s from about 1972 to about 1977, 1978, when a, a third world department at KPFA was more or less settled upon. Later on, many of the people who had grown up in this community, this third worldian community radio environment, Came to the conclusion that it wasn't that it wasn't such a good idea, uh, that it wasn't that 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 having these separate enclaves um, was satisfying in the immediate moment for the people who were just getting into radio, but that as time went on, it was um, not such a great not such a great strategy for building a larger audience at Pacifica Radio. So ironically, um, some of these people would increasingly advocate um, um, scuttling 
all of that. And that would, of course, um, create its own enormous problem, getting rid of all of those programs at KPFA, KPFT, and KPFK in the mid-1990s. And that would create this kind, kind of core of exiles who would become part of the, um, um, the big core of forces that would attack the old Pacifica board in 1999. On the subject of building audience in the 1980s and perhaps before, there was, as you write about in this book, a profound shift in the media environment in which Pacifica existed, and this shift affected both commercial and non-commercial radio. What happened? What did the shift consist of? The shift consisted of getting rid of local programming. The shift consisted of abandoning all kinds of practices, procedures, and protocols throughout broadcasting, whether it's commercial, public, or um, or community, that um, relied upon volunteer or local programmers or local voices of any kind. Uh, this began in 1979 with the ending of Class D low-power FM licenses, followed by the Reagan administration's um, abandoning of public service requirements for commercial radio stations, followed by the end of the Fairness Doctrine, which provided some access for citizens to respond to things that had been said on radio and television stations, followed by the rise of the adaptation of national public radio satellite programming to most public radio stations, edging out a lot of local shows, um, followed by enhanced commercial underwriting, underwriting at public radio stations and even at community radio stations, Followed finally by the pièce de résistance, the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which created this veritable lo Oklahoma land rush of buying and selling radio stations, which resulted in radio stations becoming um, very, very expensive to buy, and thus uh, very few radio station um, um, managements being willing to share on a local level much of the resources of the radio station. Bottom line became the bottom line for a lot of these radio stations, and this is yet another pushing out, edging out of all kinds of local programming. I mean, I don't have to tell anybody this. You just listen to all the radio stations today. You know, I was at the KPFA Crafts Fair. Nothing could have been more obvious to me, if I could plug KPFA here for a minute. I was at the KPFA um, Crafts Fair, and, you know, I was watching Andrea Lewis um, hosting whatever it is she was hosting, you know, listening to the musicians, having people come and go, you know, it's sort of this, you know, people sitting sitting next to her, her sort of just buttonholing people and then, you know, then the next person, the next person, very open, um, very spontaneous. After that, I went over to the Metreon in San Francisco and Live 105, as it's called, KITS, the quote-unquote modern rock station, had a similar get, um, get up in which they had, you know, they, they, they said that they were broadcasting live from the Metreon and they had, a, they had a stand and they had a little booth and people were sort of watching them. And their version of live broadcasting consisted of one guy, Literally, they were literally showing this in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. One guy with a computer. Uh, the computer would play music, play commercials. Every now and then, you could see the com you could see the screen. It would prompt him to say something for 15 seconds, about every 15 minutes, and then it would go back to the automatic, um, the, the automatic um, uh, digital play. I mean, this is this is live radio. There's nothing. There was, he never invited anybody there. He never had anybody. There were no guests. There was nobody but him, and there was hardly even him. This is what radio has become. This has enormous consequences for Pacifica Radio. And if you look at the National Board minutes starting in the early 19, 1980s, you see people saying, you know, what, what, you know, all these people are showing up with all these things that they want, and it's obvious that they they, they want them 
because they can't get them any because increasingly they can't get them anywhere else. What this has done to Pacifica Radio is it has made it an increasingly difficult place to govern. It has made it an increasingly difficult place to be. And one of the things I argue is is that we need to get past all the cliches about the left. You know, everybody's standing around in a circle and firing at each other and all these sort of cultural arguments that we make about the left and, or, and, and see that the biggest challenge that Pacifica Radio faces is not its internal environment, but the external environment around which Pacifica broadcasts, which denies local access, regional access to so many people so that Pacifica Radio and a few other institutions have to pick up the slack. Matthew Lazar, author most recently of Uneasy Listening, Pacifica Radio's Civil War, just out from Black Apollo Press. My name is C.S. Song. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio and online at kpfa.org. So in 1992, a woman named Gail Christian, then Pacifica's Director of National Programming, she completed a study for the foundation entitled A Strategy for National Programming. What briefly did that document provide, and to what extent did it indicate that Christian wanted to go along with this new media environment of arbitrons and audience marketing and market-driven programming choices? Well, first of all, we should say something about Gail Christian. Gail Christian was a maverick at PBS. She was the advocate for all of the radical, uh, adventurous um, um, daring uh, public television documentaries that people wanted to broadcast. And she was eventually told that she just wasn't really welcome there. And she went over to Pacifica Radio. And at Pacifica Radio, she created this, in 1992, she created this document called Strategy for National Programming. And what it basically argued was that Pacifica would create this national production center, I guess in Washington, D.C., and that it would produce about five hours of national programming for all five Pacifica stations. And, and programming become much more centralized. And there is this thing I, this is a phenomenon that I refer to at Pacifica Radio called the Verdun effect. In the fields of Verdun in the 1915, if you stuck your head above the um, um, the trenches for more than seven seconds, a hail of gunfire from all directions would come at you, and that's pretty much true at Pacifica Radio. Anything visible gets attacked. Anything that's anything that everybody can see, mm-hmm. that just happens. Um, if you look at the if you look at Pacifica Radio, often the most successful things happen where nobody's looking, <laughs> and the reason for that is because since nobody's looking, it can it can, it happen, can happen for a while. Yes, right, and and that's that's very much what true what happened to Gail Christian's strategy for national programming. It was discovered by a whole lot of people who were already disgruntled about the direction that Pacifica was going, and they turned it into this big um, they turned it into this big to do. But it is also true that Pacifica was more and more experimenting with national programming and that it was successful at a lot of it. Um, most, fam- most famously, it, Larry Bensky's um, um, Iran-Contra um, um, hosting, followed by further hosting of the Bork hearings and the, the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas um, um, hearings. Pacifica was experimenting with trying to build a larger audience through big national programming events. And to some degree, Cale Christian was, I think, responding to that. There were things about the document that clearly indicated that that we had a new generation of people who were using language like marketing. I mean, I, as I say in the book, she uses the word marketing about 27 times over and over and over again. 
and this, of course, became another flashpoint um, for people. But it was part and parcel of a general direction, which starting in the early 1980s and accelerating in the mid-1990s, uh, Pacifica was going in, which was centralized, professionalized, um, and uh, try and build a larger national audience in the early in the early 1980s, uh, I believe Peter Frank, who was at that time president of Pacifica, said we need to we need to get five percent of the national audience. We need to figure out how to get five percent of, of of all Americans who listen to ra- listen to radio. What I argue in this book is is that superficially Pacifica seemed like the right place to become the national voice for the left. I mean, here you have these five regional radio stations. The question constantly being asked from the early 1980s through onward, how can we be more than the sum of our parts? But the reality is, is that the Pacifica Radio Network, because it is so grassroots and locally based, was in fact not such a great candidate for this great big makeover. Because you have too many people who have no place better to go, who will refuse, who, who refused to be displaced. The national leadership says, you know, these people are not, these people are no good. They don't fit into our national strategy. They, you know, their, their programming is fragmented. It, it speaks to just their friends. It, you know, balkanized, fragmented audiences at all five Pacifica radio stations. But what they never figured out is the strategy for what to do if these populations of people refuse to cooperate with the grand master plan. What you see by the mid 1990s is you see at all five Pacifica stations, um, these little communities of exiles who have been dumped, dumped after the KPFA restructuring of 1995, dumped after the KPFK um, purge of the um, earlier 1990s, um, dumped at WBAI, dumped at KPFT, which basically threw out a whole slew of local programmers in favor of a highly um, satellite-based public broadcasting-oriented um, 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 schedule. These people did not just disappear into thin air. They formed groups. Um, they formed, um, and they had a new tool that they could use that had just matured called the Internet. Email lists, um, websites, they could suddenly communicate with each other. All five Pacifica stations could communicate. The dissidents, the people who had been thrown out of um, the, the stations, could now communicate with each other and build these little communi- these little cyber communities which never really succeeded in overthrowing the old national board and stopping its project, but they succeeded in keeping alive and 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 building a community of Pacifica dissidents. Were there people on the other side of the equation who, say, supported Pat Scott, who was originally KPFA general manager and then became executive director of Pacifica? She sort of implemented, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Gail Christian's strategy. She transformed the network to include strip programming. She reduced the many local and locally focused programs. Were there some people on the left and some people within the listening audience and the staff who supported sort of these centralizing tendencies she embodied? Well, in 1999, after uh, the Lynn disaster's decision to fire um, Nicole Sawyer and then begin firing people who protested about on the airwaves, uh, they, the Pacifica fight, which had been smoldering for a very, very long time, since about 1992, really, uh, became a national issue for the left. Suddenly, 
everybody on the left became engulfed in this debate about what was happening at KPFA in Berkeley. And the task for different people within the organization, within the left, was to explain to a mystified general public what this was all about. Because it was, I mean, the the general public, the general progressive liberal public was mystified at why KPFA had exploded um, in 1999 and why there were 10,000 people out on the street. There was one cartoon that came out in the San Francisco Chronicle. It's very funny. shows Lynn Chadwick in a Napoleon outfit. And somebody comes around the corner and says, um, they, they're on the other side of the building and everybody just wants to know why. Mm-hmm. You know, what is this? What's going on? Uh, the Save Pacifica narrative essentially was that for a very, very long time, Pat Scott and her allies had been trying to corporatize Pacifica Radio, that they had been trying to um, bring it into the wing of the Democratic Party, that an example being Mary Frances Berry, head of the um, U.S. Civil Rights Commission and a close ally of Bill Clinton, and that we heroic true Pacificans have to take it back. That was one argument. That was what I call the democracy narrative. And the democracy narrative often had various intellectuals and writers who wrote histories of this sad saga and how it had come to this and the slow infiltration of these individuals into the um, Pacifica organization. On the other hand, there were groups of people, particularly in, in, in at KPFK in Los Angeles, there was Mark Cooper. Mark Cooper is someone with a long history at Pacifica Radio that goes back to the early 1980s. And Mark Cooper wrote an editorial in The Nation magazine essentially arguing that there were two that this is a fight between two groups of people the people who want Pacifica Radio to be sort of a tom-tom of um of activist news and activities and the people who want it to be something larger than that a kind of a um a le monde um of the um United States um in which um with some intellectual heft as i as i believe he said mm-hmm. and um um with some with some analytical distance even from the movements um that it was was sympathetic to a newspaper of the left peter frank in the early 19 um early 80s had said something along these lines that we need to not be a newsletter of the left so much as a newspaper of the left and this was a continuation of that um so mark cooper in in a chapter which i call in defense of the realm argued this case that basically Pacifica was just um, that that the fight the fight over Nicole Sawaya and he actually came out for the rehiring of Nicole Sawaya in his editorial um, the fight over Nicole Sawaya was essentially a bump on the road to a more relevant and professional uh, Pacifica radio and so there was this kind of this back and forth between what I call the democracy narrative and the relevance narrative and they will both sort of wound up speaking past each other Ultimately, what did Pacifica in, I think, was the fact that um, its actions really did not demonstrate that it was moving towards anything except um, uh, bumbling attempts to maintain a control over a situation that obviously defied control. And that is the voice of Matthew Lazar, L-A-S-A-R. He teaches U.S. history and telecommunications politics at University of California, Santa Cruz. He's author of Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network, published by Temple University Press in 1999, which addressed the early history of Pacifica Radio. And he is author most recently of Uneasy Listening, Pacifica Radio's Civil War. 
And you are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio and online at kpfa.org. Co-producer Sasha Lilly is at the controls. My name is C.S. Song. And on our website, againstofthegrain.org, you will find links to two books written by Matthew Lazar, our guest in studio today, Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network, and Uneasy Listening, Pacifica Radio's Civil War, just out from Black Apollo Press. We're talking today mostly about that book, and much of the book focuses uh, focuses on Pacifica Radio's Civil War, which really became uh, exploded into public view in March 1999 with the firing by Pacifica Executive Director Lynn Chadwick of then-KPFA General Manager Nicole Sawaya. And before we get to Sawaya and the talk about selling KPFA or WBAI and perhaps to more discussion about whether this really represented a corporate takeover or an attempted corporate takeover of Pacifica and its five stations. What about that? Uh, I, I guess there were some left commentators who had some interesting things to say about this centralizing tendency in the 1990s toward strip programming, toward getting a more standardized format that, as you mentioned might accord with those people within Pacifica and without who wanted something bigger, some sort of unified radio voice for the U.S. left. I found out I was surprised at, at people who I talked to who said they didn't mind strip programming, didn't have any problem. Rafael Renteria, for example, at KPFK in Los Angeles, I interviewed him. I asked him what he thought about strip programming. He said he didn't have any objection to strip programming. What he had objection to was programming that was off mission. Um, and, of course, we all define what we think the mission is um, differently. I'm sure Raphael has his own definition. Uh, the the issue some, for, for lots of people I don't think was strip programming, although for some people it was strip programming on an aesthetic level. Um, I think that the issue was the number of people who were um, displaced as a result of strip programming, as a result of programming that was uh, which in which people did not have their own coherent shows mm-hmm. but um, appeared in modular form on larger programs. This resulted in a lot of um, restructuring of all five Pacifica stations, especially KPFK, KPFT, and um, KPFA. To some degree, WBAI. I'm not so sure about WPFW. Uh, the main issue for lots of people was is that lots of people got displaced, and they got no place better to go. And that was really the co- that was really the core of the whole thing, um, to to a large extent. The displacement of so many programmers who had come up with the um, community radio era. And Nicole Sawaya was displaced on March 31st, 1999. Recall for us why she was fired or what Pacifica had to say about why she was fired. And then tell us kind of briefly what happened as a consequence. Well, Nicole was um, in conflict with various um, policies and procedures um, at Pacifica. And unfortunately, I cannot say exactly why Lynn Chadwick fired Nicole Sawaya. I tried to interview Lynn, Lynn Chadwick. I went to her and I called her up and she very explicitly turned me down. So I can't say what the specific, uh, the specifics were. Uh, Pat Scott wanted to fire Nicole. Ironically, Pat Scott had recruited N- Nicole Sawaya as the general manager of the station, which I thought was actually a very good move on her part. Um, and then she became angry with Nicole because she felt Nicole wasn't restructuring things fast enough. That's what Pat told me. Um, and she volunteered to fire um, Nicole Sawaya, but um, 
um, left as executive director and then Lynn Chadwick um, um, did it. The specific reasons why Lynn Chadwick fired Nicole, she did not tell me. She would not tell me. She would not tell the listeners. So it was all the more mystifying to people. Then on top of that, she began to fire people and throw them off the air who violated the so-called gag rule. And the gag rule says you cannot discuss internal station matters over the air. Now, KPFA was shut down in mid-July 1999 after, among other things, an email from Pacifica National Board member Michael Palmer, an email in which he discusses what appears to be a plan to sell KPFA, was misdelivered to and then disseminated by the group Media Alliance. How real was this prospect of a sale of either KPFA or another station that kept coming up was WBAI in New York? Well, first of all, I'd like to say one thing. I have, to my absolute horror, heard various people do Internet shows in which they have actually questioned whether that that email actually existed. Mm. Not only did that email exist, but Pacifica acknowledged that Michael Palmer sent it issued a public statement of apology, and subsequent national board members said, referred to it um, over and over again. Anyone who tells you that that email did not actually happen is a damned liar, in my opinion. How how serious was the possibility that um, Pacifica was going to... In my opinion was, yeah, it was serious. What about the argument that, and you referred to this earlier, that Pacifica's agenda, that Mary Frances Berry and her allies' agenda was to affect basically a corporate democratic party takeover of pacifica and its five stations well how can you make that argument when many of the people who supported the old um mary francis berry board were themselves hardly beltway pundits i mean utris lead at new york city who was the um executor of what was called the christmas coup um, um at wbai she was very critical of the democratic party in her programming mark cooper in in 2000 um bark cooper who defended, apologized for the old Pacifica National Board on a, on a, on a number of occasions. Um, so it was a big supporter of Ralph Nader. So was um, Saul Landau, who issued this big public petition um, called Stop the Pacifica Bashing. I mean, whatever disagreements you might have with them about what was going on at Pacifica, you could not call these people Democratic Party hacks mm. or corporate hacks. These individuals, um, whatever disagreements... Um, the Free Pacifica movement may have had a, with them about the direction that Pacifica was going were not conventional mainstream programmers. And some of them had earlier involvement with the Communist Party, for example. Yes, absolutely. Um, so so I, I don't think that you can really find a consistent base of evidence that supports the idea that it was a Democratic Party takeover. Having said that, it was clear that there were individuals within um, within this, um, with, you know, within what I call the coalition of the willing, uh, the people, you know, the old, the old Pacific Award and its supporters, there's clearly, uh, you know, people there who were clearly in the coming out of the corporate sector, clearly coming out of the Democratic Party sector, but not, but you know, people who supported Pacifica had always come out of the corporate sector and the Democratic Party sector. Um, the guy who gave WBAI to the Pacifica Radio Network was himself a corporate executive who had what some, what I would describe, what I think we would experience as rather conservative viewpoints about the direction that Pacifica Radio should go in. So what did, to the best of your knowledge, what did Mary Frances Berry really want What did they do? want? What did they want? I don't think that they knew what they wanted to do. I think what they wanted was control. 
I think that this is, I re, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I think that a lot of the people who came into governance at Pacifica in the late 1990s, as Pacifica's leadership kept pushing towards this impossible task of herding all of these boisterous radical cats, which are the five Pacifica stations, into one unit ostensibly greater than the sum of its parts. They lost their souls. They became... They began to see the base of Pacifica as their enemy and the outside world, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, um, professionals, even to some degree commercial broadcasting, as their friend. Whenever they went into the Ogre's Den, which is Pacifica Radio, they found themselves surrounded by detractors, now increasingly using the Internet, and they developed what I call a culture of toughness. Uh, they were just going to, we're just going to, you know, bare knuckle it, and we're just going to, you know, and, and you see this in management a lot. You see just getting rid of people, firing people, restructuring everything. Where is it going? As time goes on, it becomes less, I think it became mm -hmm. less clear to them mm -hmm. where it was going. It was not so much about any specific political goal or ideological goal as much as maintaining control over an organization which really defied defied control by their methods. So when did the tide turn? When did programmers and listeners alike, when, when did their efforts congeal to such an extent that Pacifica realized that they could get nowhere with what they wanted to do with Pacifica, whatever they wanted to do with Pacifica? Well, I think that what happened was is that uh, the Pacifica National Board and Pacifica National Management began spending unsustainable amounts of money on lawyers, public relations firms, private investigators, f given Pacifica's resources, fabulous amounts of money. Armed guards at KPFA. Armed, armed guards at KPFA. By, you know, by November, October 2001, they spent themselves into bankruptcy. They spent themselves to the point where they no longer could sustain any kind of credible front. And they spent the money, in my opinion, rather badly. Spent it on a, a public relations firm that suggested that they get Bill Clinton as their um, public relations spokesperson. Um, get um, uh, Jimmy Carter as their public relations spokesperson. Gave them PowerPoint slides with slogans that were um, grammatically incorrect. And charged them four hundred five hundred thousand dollars for this. The Pacifica campaign played an important role. We haven't really talked about Juan Gonzalez's Pacifica campaign, but it played a very important role in unifying a lot of the disparate forces. But ultimately, um, in fairness to Juan, I don't think it was the Pacifica campaign that did the Pacific that did the old board in so much as their spending. Um, by the time October and November um, came along, even Mark Cooper and Mark Shubbs KPFK was in revolt against them because they had no money. They were spending all. They were spending all five Pacifica stations dry, including the resources of the stations whose managements had supported them. There was nothing that they could do by early December, except appeal for peace, and which is what they did. And um, in early December, the second week of December, they um, uh, settled with the national board, and uh, my good friend Sherry Gendelman, um, who was on the current. Um, KPFA local station board called me up and said, Matthew, the second worst thing that could possibly happen has <laughs> happened. We won. And why would she say this? And this goes toward the factionalized 
character of the victorious forces, the staff, and you document this, who allied themselves with some listeners and some former programmers that they might not have allied themselves with, but for the crisis precipitated by Nicole Sawyer's firing? We won in the sense, and we won, in the sense that we now have a structure which, and I think this is important, I think that it is important that the listeners listener subscribers, that I get to vote for the local station board. I have my disagreements with how it's all structured. Everybody has their disagreements with how it's all structured. But I think that including the listener subscribers in governance was a very important victory. Um, I am very relieved that we no longer have a management that thinks that using armed guards, and they were armed, um, um, that occupying KPFA with armed guards is a salute is a management solution that using gag rule was a management solution that firing the general manager without even consulting with anybody else was a solution i'm very glad that we no longer have um management that does things like that at pacifica radio but we are still the same five radio station network full of people with a few other places better to go the conditions that precipitated Pacifica Radio's civil war have not gone away. We have democratized from the inside, but the outside is not democratized as all. And so the tensions bearing down on Pacifica Radio. My first book, Pacifica Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network, is the story of Pacifica Radio negotiating its way through McCarthyism and the Cold War. My second book is the story of Pacifica Radio negotiating its way through globalization. And what globalization has left us with is an extremely undemocratic exterior that puts a tremendous pressure and tension on our interior. And that cannot be solved. That was not solvable by autocracy. It's not solvable by democracy, internal democracy either. Ultimately, it's what happens beyond Pacifica's borders that really matters. So, Matthew, your emphasis on external factors, the media environment in which Pacifica operates, makes me wonder about what democratization does in terms of different constituencies now because of democratization coming forth with agendas that, of course, may be opposed to each other, may differ from each other, may, of course, be similar with each other, but part of democracy is having many different viewpoints being pulled into the mix. And so the question is, could conflict between different viewpoints from democratic participants in Pacifica's governance now, could that be an issue? Could that be an issue perhaps of equal magnitude to the external media constraints that you point out so clearly in this book? Well, I think that the presence of many, many different groups of people who disagree with each other about the direction that Pacifica Radio should go um, in Pacifica Radio at this time is going to be um, a major challenge to the possibility of um, larger, uh, more expansive um, uh, waves of national programming coming out of Pacifica Radio. I could be wrong. I'd be delighted to be um, proven wrong about this, but it seems to me that that's going to be a tremendous um, challenge uh, to the organization. I think that the left needs a national voice. It needs a national broadcasting voice. And while Pacifica Radio is a great resource and can, and can contribute a great and contribute lots of resources to creating that voice, I'm not so sure it's a great structure 
for that. I mean, look at how quickly Air America Radio. I mean, Air America, I've got problems with Air America Radio. Lots of people have problems with it in terms of, you know, the things that it, it will talk about, the things that it won't talk about, um, about um, progressive issues. But Air America Radio, which immediately saw itself as not local but national, was able to move very quickly, make make a very big splash across the United States, precisely because it thought of, it thought it, it thought purely on a national level. We have an organization that thinks both on a national and very much on a local level, and I think that that makes thinking on a national level and producing on a national level very very difficult. So, to use the old business cliche, I really think that um, people who want there to be more national vo- more left to have more of a national broadcasting voice need to think outside of the Pacifica box. How can we create that both on an organizational level, on a foundation level, and on a resource level? Not just working inside of Pacifica Radio, but working throughout all of the different resources which the left in the United States and elsewhere has for broadcasting. I think that if we just think in terms of Pacifica Radio, how is Pacifica Radio going to do this? We're making a big mistake, and obviously Mamie Goodman has broken out of that box herself. I mean, she's essentially an independent contractor working with Pacifica Radio and working with a lot of other organizations. And I think that was a very smart move on her part. Matthew Lazar's new book is Uneasy Listening, Pacifica Radio's Civil War. This is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning. And Sasha and I will look for you next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Sung. Please visit our companion website, againstthegrain.org, which has instructions for ordering CD copies of programs, links to related resources, and MP3 audio from recent shows, as well as ways of reaching C.S. and Sasha. And to make a comment or suggestion, drop us an email at againstthegrain at kpfa.org or call us at 510-848-6767 extension 209. Our theme music is by Damal Sound System. Check them out at damalsf.com.